Morning, everybody. Um, so today we are looking at Colossians 3, 11 to 16, and Jane is going to come up and read it to you. Hello, everybody. <laughs> um, it is page 1184 in the regular Bibles and page 1872 in the big print Bible, which I am modelling here. So we are going to go from verse 11, which I will find here. Here we go. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you tweet as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. This is the word of the Lord. Right. Um, for anybody who hasn't been around for the rest of the series, um, we are dealing with a letter which Paul wrote from um, prison in Rome to the new Christian converts in Colossae. And Colossae was a small town in what is now Turkey. And in this section of the letter, Paul's trying to get the new believers to understand that once you give your life to Christ, you can't live as if nothing's changed. So last week, Lucy gave a brilliant talk on the first 10 verses of this chapter in which um, Paul speaks about the importance of taking your new identity in Christ uh, when you become Christians and of letting go of old patterns of behavior that are not appropriate to our new position. And this week, I'm going to build on that. But um, before I do that, I want to tell you a cautionary tale of what happens when we fail to live out of our new uh, identity. And um, unfortunately, this cautionary tale stars me. Uh, it takes place shortly after I was ordained. Um, at that time, I had damaged my knee, so I found uh, walking was painful. And I arrived in church early to lead a service, but uh, I hadn't had time to eat anything. And I thought, I've just got enough time to pop around to, wait to Waitrose and grab something. By the time I got it to the shop, my knee was throbbing, so I decided to take a trolley. I uh, gingerly took it through the doors, um, placing most of my weight actually on the trolley. And then I found if I leant forward and balanced on the trolley, I could give a big push with one foot, much like a scooter, whilst keeping the damaged leg off the ground. And this had the double benefit, not only of protecting my knee, but also of speeding up the shopping process. And you'd be quite surprised at how much speed you can build up once you've really mastered this technique. Anyway, I found myself standing at the bottom of one of those very wide aisles, and the runway was clear. This was the perfect opportunity to find out exactly how fast I could go. 
Head down, I pushed off, rhythmically pushing the ground away with my left foot while keeping my right foot well out of harm's way. I was feeling pretty pleased with myself as I glided down the highway at speed. And this is shopping as it ought to be, I thought to myself. However, my delight was short-lived. I looked up to see a store detective at the end of the aisle, <laughs> arms folded, and his gaze locked onto me. Which church do you go to? He inquired. In that small split second, I deduced several things which I might have perhaps benefited from thinking about before engaging in the shopping trolley shenanigans. Firstly, the security guard had asked me which church I went to. This then meant there must be some visible sign that I'm a Christian. I had either developed a visible halo or I was wearing my dog collar. Unfortunately, the latter was true. Secondly, in a flash, I remembered that as a dog collar wearer, I represent the Church of England. And I deduced they may not be well pleased with the job I was doing. And thirdly, as a member of the St. Saviour's clergy, I also represent our church family. Hi, y'all. <laughs> and I had put your reputation at stake. I brought my trolley to an abrupt stop in front of the man, whilst maintaining as much dignity as I possibly could. Which church do I go to? St. Cuthbert's Baptist Church. Why do you ask? <laughs> I didn't really say that, but I did want to. That was my wake-up call to the fact that as a member of the clergy, there are some things that I used to do which are no longer appropriate. And the point that Paul is making in this letter is similar. When I slid down the shopping aisle on my trolley, whether I realized it or not, I did so not only representing myself, but also the Church of England. And likewise, when we become Christians, whether we realize it or not, whatever we say or do, we do so representing not only ourselves, but also Christ. Because when we become Christians, we also become ambassadors of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul explains... Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. God has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. When we say we serve and represent a God of love and our behavior reflects this, we bring honor and glory to God. But when we behave in an unloving, judgmental, or ungracious way, we bring his name into disrepute. Paul then goes on to explain that as ambassadors of the same king and the same kingdom, there is nothing that should be allowed to separate us. There is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. When we pray the prayer, we become brothers and sisters. Look around you. This is your family. All the things that marked our identity before that, such as our country of birth, the color of our skin, our education, 
our financial situation, our status in society, our gender, our police record, our preferred political party, football team or band are no longer what define us. What defines us is our new identity in Christ. My primary, primary identity, therefore, I'm pleased to say, is not that of a middle-aged, middle-class, British, Caucasian female and a member of the cloth, because she sounds very boring. My primary identity is, as is yours, that I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, a child of and ambassador for the king of kings. I am a spirit-filled temple, equipped and commissioned to extend the boundaries of the kingdom of God and a sister to all other Christians. When we come to faith, our past was washed away in Christ's blood and we were adopted into his family, becoming brothers and sisters in Christ. All the things that divided us in the past are now irrelevant. What matters now is not our status in society, but our status in Christ. And the world teaches us to compare ourselves with each other, to judge everyone and look out for reasons why you are different from me. Or to look at different ways in which other people fall short, and then to make sure that you separate yourself from anybody who doesn't quite make the mark. But the Bible teaches us that we should be like our Trinitarian God, that we should embrace diversity and unity. The Bible tells us we're actually designed to be different from each other. Each person's uniquely made and carries different gifts, and each one is essential to the whole. Therefore, if we want to experience life in all its fullness, we need to stick together. We need each other and each other's gifts. If one person falls, another picks them up. If one person is hungry, another person feeds them. Our gifts are given to us so that we can use them to bless others. Someone once, before uh, leaving a church that I was serving in, wanted to give me some feedback. They told me I had upset them when I told them that I could see God using them in their ministry. They said they'd found that mortally offending because I had spoken to them about their faith, which was private. And they went on to explain that as a result of my intrusion, they would never again discuss their faith with anyone. I was shocked and upset, firstly because my intention had been to encourage them, not to upset them, and secondly, because they'd been a Christian for 40 years but had failed to understand a basic principle of Christianity, which is that we are supposed to work out our faith in community. The Christian faith is not a private affair. It never has been and it never will be. We are meant to share our needs, hopes and gifts with each other, to encourage, challenge, love and champion each other on our journeys. And you, as my church family, are the people I look to to teach and admonish me with all wisdom, to tell me when I'm wandering off the straight and narrow, grab me by the hand and draw me lovingly back in again. And it's been this wonderful and diverse family that have looked after me over the last five years and have cheered me on on my way. You've encouraged me and given me 
confidence when I felt inadequate. You've reminded me that God equips those he calls and that all things are possible for those who hope in the Lord. And without that support, I would not have been able to grow in the way I have during my time with you. So for that, I am extremely grateful. We each play a vital role in each other's lives. Paul urges us, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In the same way that my dog collar marks me out as a member of the clergy, our behavior, the way that we treat each other, should mark us out as followers of Christ. As Jesus teaches, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So let me ask you a question, and I want you to be honest. Raise your hand if there has ever been a member of your church family who have got on your nerves. Raise your hand if it was more than one. If you don't have your hand raised, let me tell you that sooner or later, you surely will. Our church families are made up of individuals who, like us, are not perfect. We each come from different backgrounds with different expectations, and we lug around different baggage. Of course, we're going to bump into each other from time to time. However, what both Paul and Jesus are asking us to do is respond in a way which is befitting of our ambassadorial status. And I wanted to give you a couple of examples of people who I have seen do this really well. And I'm afraid neither of these are me. (laughs) The first story took place when my friend joined a new company. He was really looking forward to working there, partly because uh, he felt he was particularly fitted to this role and partly because he'd heard that his boss was a Christian. However, his dream job soon turned into a nightmare. He worked as hard as he could and to all intents and purposes, he seemed to be doing a good job. But he noticed from the very first day, his boss didn't seem to like him. She was always making snide remarks and putting him down in front of other people. In fact, he became so depressed, he decided to hand in his notice. But before he had a chance to do that, he felt God ask him to take his boss a bunch of flowers and an apology. He definitely did not want to do that. He felt certain that this initiative would be met with further disdain and mockery but he was obedient to God's prompting. He met with a few of us and we prayed intently. He bought a beautiful bunch of flowers and took them into work. When he saw his boss, he asked if he could have a quick chat. He explained that he could see he had done something to upset her and he apologized. He explained it had not been intentional and asked her to forgive him. He then gave her the flowers. His boss started to cry as he did this. This gesture of kindness and humility broke the deadlock. And she later explained that she'd previously been in an abusive relationship and had come to believe that all men are the same. But his reaction had showed her how wrong she was. And what he did not only transformed his working relationship with her, but also helped her begin a process of healing.
The second story took place when I was part of a team that helped plant new congregation into an existing church. The existing congregation were very, of a very different church tradition from ours, but they were very eager for us to join them as they had been praying for some time for young people to come back into their church and they felt we could be the answer to their prayer. Whilst most of the existing congregation were incredibly welcoming and encouraging, there was one long-standing member of their flock that was less than enthusiastic. Every Sunday after the morning service had finished and the church was empty, our worship team would move in to set up for the evening worship. As the team arrived to do this, every Sunday, without fail, this lady would be there and would launch a verbal attack on them, including a tirade of expletives. The reason she was so upset was that in order to be able to set up the instruments, the band had to move the altar rail. Her upset stemmed from the fact that she felt they, that by moving the rail, they were desecrating a holy space. The band were really apologetic and explained they, had no, they meant no disrespect and that they also loved God, but there was no other way of getting their instruments in place without moving the rail. They also promised to replace the rail as soon as the service was finished in exactly the same place, but this didn't placate the lady. On the first occasion this happened, everybody was very shocked and upset, but nothing they could say would reassure her. As the scenario played out week in, week out, and the level of aggression mounted, they found her behavior more and more offensive. And to be met every Sunday with such hatred and abuse is extremely disheartening and not an ideal prelude to worship. There are many actions the band could have taken. They could have launched a counterattack of verbal abuse. They could have chosen to badmouth her behind her back to other people. Or they could have just banned her from the building entirely. However, they decided instead to launch a love offensive. Every time they saw her, they made a point of saying something nice to her. And behind her back, instead of gossiping, they prayed for her. Slowly, over time, as she saw the reverence of the band and their attitude towards her and the growing number of young people in the building, her attitude softened. So that after about eight months, she swapped services to join the new congregation. And she has now become one of the band's greatest supporters and advocates. As members of a church family, it is possible that we may come across people who look at life differently from us. And their attitudes may make us feel angry, resentful, or bitter 